Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 67. I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Joshua Klein. And what's new around here? We've got a uh, few things. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. No, uh, we have several different things. We have uh, the Greenwood Spoon Carving book. Yep. And online video course yeah. companion to the book. Yep. Yeah. And they are, uh, the book was released before the course and got out into the world uh, to many excited uh, individuals and uh, has received many rave reviews. Yeah. People um, are really excited about the book. So were we. Yes. Uh, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, our friend Emmett Van Dreisch uh, spent three years making an amazing book kind of the, the pinnacle of his publishing about spoon carving. Uh, he has Spoonosaurus magazine. It's all about spoon carving. And uh, so he, re- he spent three years writing this book, self-published it, launched it out there, sent us a copy, and we mm-hmm. said, oh my goodness, Emmett, this book is amazing. It's the best spoon carving book ever. Yeah. Where, you know, where can we get a copy? Can we stock it? And then we saw it was print on demand and yep. you know, north of $200. Very I don't expensive. What, uh, it's just the nature of self-publishing yep. uh, with print on demand. And we said, Emmett, please, do you want a publisher? Can we publish can, can this? Can we print this? And uh, so we came to uh, a happy agreement, and we're both, mm-hmm. we're all three of us are excited about it. Um, and uh, so we got this book out, and it's just, it's a tome. It's so yep. thick, so much really great information. Yep. And so that came out. And then um, Emmett came to visit us, and uh, we spent a day uh, videoing and creating a, a course for spoon carving. So this is an online video course, just like our other video courses where um, you you sign up for it, you have lifetime access to it, and uh, you can access and go through it at your own pace. You know, if you want to do, you know, an hour of it, if you want to do five minutes of it, if you want to take a week off or whatever you want to do, you can do it at your pace. But Emmett goes through the whole process from start to finish mm-hmm. uh, with things like sharpening and safety and um, all of his, the axe work, the, the stump, you mm-hmm. know, he makes a stump yep. for this video and then, uh, goes through the different tools and different process and, and, uh, how to kind of envision your spoon and how to make it happen. Yeah. And I think the thing about Emmett's teaching with this subject is he, it's not only it's, it's common for someone who's skilled, you watch them and you see, oh, well, they just make it look easy, right? Right. Cause they're so good. So that makes it look easy. But the way he teaches it, you realize, oh, that is just so much easier. That is mm-hmm. the way to approach it. Yeah. So he talks through not only his process, but the logic behind his process yeah. to to uh, set himself up for success and that he's worked through that over the years as a professional spoon carver. Um, so his design and um, the the carving process are kind of, they work in tandem. They, yeah. they support each other. So the book is the best book on spoon carving we've ever seen. We're mm-hmm. so excited about it. This course is so good. It is the best, it, Emmett's the best teacher in spoon carving, yeah. I think. So we're just so excited to have this out there. If you got the book and the course, you don't need anything else in the world yeah, just for, the to tools, learn how, right? to, how to carve spoons. Yeah, exactly. Get the few tools and you are all set. You will have a lifetime of pursuit. Um, he is, he's very, very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and he's a, he's an excellent teacher. Yeah. So it's, that's part of the, I it's mean, great resource. One of the keys to it is that he, uh, for Emmett, it's, he's 
really into sharing what he has, what mm-hmm. he knows. And so he's explained this so many times to different people here and there over the years that he's really polished the way he explains it. And yep. I think that's really vital. When he talks about sharpening, he's talking about, you know, this really nuanced thing of looking and seeing, you know, that edge and looking for very specific things, but he's figured out a way to say it in a way that just makes sense, mm-hmm. um, where you might beat around the bush a few times trying to figure out how to say it, and he just knows how to put it. Yep. Uh, so it's really useful. Uh, we're psyched about this course and the book. And so those are out there. Um, so you can go over to our website, mortisandtendonmag.com, and check them out over there. Uh, also, we've been buttoning up for the winter, kind of, mm-hmm. the House by Hand project. So relieving, so exciting. Yeah. The the big timber frame project is winter ready. Yep. Let it snow, With which it was doing today. After that, yeah. winter ready, done. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, seeing some flurries in the sky makes us feel happy that mm-hmm. we ain't worried. Mm-hmm. It's all buttoned up. Yeah, it will not degrade now in the weather. It's yep. pretty well sealed. So. Yeah, so we have the uh, chimney uh, in progress. We have the house buttoned up. We have everything ready for winter and snowfall, um, and we're very much uh, looking forward to that. We've been talking about this on the Daily Dispatch mm-hmm. for what? two years now yeah. we've been documenting all this process so all of that is still on there um but we're going to continue to be writing about it and uh as we're working through these things of course it's just a shell right now it's a it's a frame closed in it's going to be a ton more uh to come with obviously all of the electrical and plumbing sorts of things but also plaster work yeah uh, working on all of this the trim cleaning up the trim it's this it is and making new trim uh making sash windows, all sorts of stuff that is still ahead of us. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe we were pretty much done with the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we're just I getting think... started. <laughs> yeah. I so, was planning to move in before winter, but it's not. Yeah, right. we we talked about that. No. Probably not going to happen. But no. um, all of that we're documenting on the Daily Dispatch. That's over at mtdailydispatch.com. And you can sign up there. We also, over there, don't just focus on house project stuff. We, we, we've done book reviews. We talk about hand tools. We do some silly behind-the-scenes things from time to time. Mm-hmm. What is going on around here or what's not going on around here? Yep. Um, sometimes we get to look at Joshua's goats running around the yard. <laughs> that happens sometimes, but it's not very often. So, yep. yeah, all of that is over at The Daily Dispatch. But today we wanted to talk about um, this crazy class we just hosted. Yeah. We just had a handful of people here in the shop for a week uh, to do some woodworking, to Mm -hmm. teach them some things about uh, shaping wood with hand tools. Uh, But it's a part of a collaboration that we've begun. Uh, It's the Mechanical Arts Program collaboration. Uh, We have collaborated with Greystone Theological Institute from Pennsylvania, and we have been... Uh, our aim has been to, they reached out to us because they have their uh, seminary students working through some really rigorous academic work, um, and they have learned so much about the value of uh, various forms of wisdom in the world. Mm. And so they wanted to be able to connect with craftspeople to teach their seminary students, their their bookworm students, uh, teach them some things about uh, the craft world, being able to roll up their sleeves, 
to uh, be working. So they, they've uh, reached out to us to collaborate. So we just had our first class yep. uh, with this whole thing. And the, it's interesting to think about this. Uh, it feels kind of like it's coming full circle, at least for mm. me. Um, yeah. Because my, my first book, Hands Employed to Write, uh, was about the furniture making of Jonathan Fisher. And Fisher was uh, a furniture maker, among other things. Uh, in the and he arrived in where where I live in the Blue Hill, Maine area. Uh, he arrived in uh, 1796, um, and he was a furniture maker and built furniture. Uh, he died in 1847, and he built furniture through much of his adult life here for his neighbors and, and friends. Um, but it was also to supplement his his meager. A ministerial salary. He was a minister, a congregational minister, um, and he was up here at that time. It feels rural right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at that I point, imagine then there wasn't a whole lot. Yeah, um, and so in you know 1796 when he arrived, it was he said there were I think there were seven mills and a few rickety shacks of houses, and it was mm-hmm. a pretty pretty backwoods frontier territory. So when he came up here to be the minister. They didn't have a large salary to give him, so he had to uh, employ uh, so many different skills that he had uh, been developing over his childhood and, and uh, college years. Uh, so many things like surveying and sign painting and furniture making and all sorts of things. And so my book was was looking at the the furniture making of this guy, this guy who was highly highly academic. He was a genius, um, and. Uh, many people were very rigorous in their, in their academics at this time, but also Fisher was exceptional. Even his contemporaries cited the fact that Fisher was uh, exceptional. But he also was very prolific with his hands, which I thought was just so interesting. So this book was focused on that. Um, and not only was it, is it, it's not just a story about, wow, he was really great at everything. That's not the point. The point was that what I saw in Fisher was that the, these different areas of his life, the you know the head, hand, and heart, that his his heart work, his ministerial work, and his head work, his academic work, his love for mathematics and all and astronomy and all those sorts of things, and his hand work, haying a field, building a rush seated uh, ladder back chair, uh, any of that kind of stuff, that for him it was explicitly connected together, that those things were all intertwined and they couldn't be separated. I was so inspired by that and thought, I want to live a life like that. Like That is how I want to, that's how I want to model my life. And so when Greystone reached out to us to say, hey, we think our academic students uh, need this, uh, they're, they're missing part of this, that we want this to be part, this craft work to be part of their education, I said, oh, Amen. That's so great. That's That's exactly what I'm interested in. Yeah. So, I mean, Fisher, the more you learn about this man, um, the more you are just left in awe. Like, um, Joshua, you explored his furniture making. That was your primary focus. But you could you could take any angle of his of his labor, of his pursuits and write a book on it, you know, as, as we always find when we go over to the Fisher house yep. to look through, we brought um, some of our students there uh, from the mechanical arts program. And, you know, you don't make it far before you're so caught up in some pursuit of his, like looking at his, uh, his block prints or his beautiful paintings mm. or 
the the art supplies that he made and then made boxes for and and grain painted the boxes grain painted the boxes half line dovetail yeah. boxes with mahoganized yeah or just his, to hold his paint stuff or the the camera obscura he made or the physiognotrace that he made to yep. do um you know the paper cutouts of people's profiles silhouettes yeah, yeah. and all of the things that he he you know he was making water filled prisms and he was doing all these things um to, to study the world because he's so interested in everything. Mm. And then it also became a way for him to earn some income. So he's doing his ministerial work. He's doing his labor, cutting firewood and, and haying, raising animals. And he's doing these other pursuits, some of which appear to just be for fun, just because he loves it and he's interested and he's passionate and fascinated. Um, so... He, he he lived this like very well-rounded life of just pursuing all these things um, seemingly because he he loved them and mm. and so that's a really um, inspiring life and an inspiring model to look to so uh, he's he's become kind of the the figurehead um, of yeah. this whole pursuit of the the head hands and heart for this this pro this program we're doing with these students of theology to introduce them to a bigger picture. So um, uh, the Greystone Institute and us, we we look back to the past for inspiration for this. Like how how do you work these two seemingly, you know, disparate fields together, right? Of, mm -hmm. of labor and then the um, uh, study or f philosophy or theology, you know, they, they've been kept at arm's length from each other for a long time. And, uh, you know, historically that was not always the case. And Matthew Crawford has highlighted this. Yes. That when you when you separate uh, intellectual work from manual work, mm -hmm. uh, that you've created a situation which you've, you have tension. And so you have these, you know, now we you have white-collar workers and blue-collar right. workers. And, you know, at the worst manifestation of this, you have... People, therefore, than people who are smart and yeah. people who can work with their hands. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and no, and that's not the way to. Down on, well, both groups look down on each other for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And um, that is not a necessary division to have. In yeah. fact, it's pretty unhealthy, as, yeah. as we can see um, if we look around a little bit. So um, we look back to the 12th century. Yeah. Which, like you do. Because that was the golden era. That was the golden era. That's <laughs> when right. everything was perfect. Yeah, uh, probably not the golden era, but there were things that were certainly different, and things that, you know, as in any age past that you look at, they actually got right that maybe we're not getting right as mm -hmm. well. But it wasn't just the the 12th century in general, but it was the work of one particular man mm -hmm. that we're looking at, uh, Hugh of Saint Victor. Uh, and his, and especially his book, the Didascalicon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was this was his uh, theological pedagogy. This was his his laying out of how to bring these worlds together. So you have the seven liberal arts, right? So if quick thirty second primer on classical education, right? So you have the trivium, and you have the quadrivium. So the trivium is grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. So just start it. Think of that as age groups, right? Grammar is your little kids, you're just teaching them 
uh, the basics. Like you bring them into your shop and you say, this is a hand plane, this is a saw. So the kids are learning, but they have no knowledge, they have no ability. They're just picking up on the grammar, right? And then you go dialectic, or this is also sometimes called the logic stage, where they start to figure that you, you hand them the saw, you show them how it works, they start to struggle. That's great, they need to struggle. Um, but they're learning the ins and outs of the tools. Then you get to the rhetoric stage where you can set them loose and they can make good things, mm -hmm. right? And obviously, uh, this is a progression and it takes years, sometimes many years. Um, but that's how you think you could think of the trivium in terms of, of your, your wood shop, right? It's just these stages of learning, of understanding. So and of those, course, that applies to any, all topics. Yeah, anything you want to learn. That's how classical education brings it to you. So you're revisiting each thing, you know, like three times. That's the, mm -hmm. the try and trivium. And so then you have the quadrivium, which are the higher learning areas of arith arithmetic, astronomy, music, geometry. Some Sometimes some writers or thinkers would reshuffle these categories a little, but those are the, the four primary of the quadrivium. And so you have those seven together as the seven liberal arts. And so what Hugh of St. Victor was um, wanting to do was to weave those together with what he called mechanical arts. And these are things that he saw as, as equally valid, equally valuable, and equally necessary to have a well-rounded human being. Yeah, and so it's interesting because in his, in his Didascalicon, he actually, he, so he creates these seven mechanical arts which it feels a little bit arbitrary because he has mm -hmm. armaments. And yeah. that, under armaments is like woodworking and all this yeah, other stuff yeah, too. Yeah. So he's got, he creates these seven categories, but what's so interesting about it, what's so compelling, and if you look up Hugh St. Victor, they're all going to cite that this is kind of one of his unique contributions, that Hugh St. Victor was self-consciously raising uh, the, the value of the mechanical arts to be a... Um, I guess, I don't know if it'd be symmetrical or asymmetrical, but a companion mm -hmm. right next to the seven liberal arts. Yeah, it's parallel. Parallel. Yeah, yeah. like uh, he, he was saying these things are, they have this great value and they need to be uh, understood and focused on and taught and learned by anyone pursuing, you know, the, uh, the liberal arts. So his categories were, uh, he, he talked about, um, how he separated them in terms of, of the natural world, actually. And he talked about uh, three of these um, mechanical arts. He says that they pertained to external cover for nature by which she protects herself from harm, those being fabric making, armament, and commerce. And like you said, Joshua, armament is not, he's not just like making cannons, like what kind of armament was going on in the 12th century but he's talking about you know this this skilled manufacture of goods, right? And then um, and four to internal by which she feeds feeds and nourishes herself. He talks there about agriculture, hunting, medicine, and theatrics. And to break up these categories again, like in hunting, he's talking about cooking and the preparation of of food that you've you've sourced. And you know it's it's a each category is not a laser focus. It's, mm -hmm. They're pretty broad. Right. Um, but these are his seven mechanical arts. And so um, looking at that and saying, okay, you know, at Greystone, they were super inspired by this. And they're looking for people like a Matthew Crawford, who's a motorcycle mechanic and a philosopher who can bring these worlds together. Mm -hmm. And so they reached out 
to to Joshua. <laughs> I said you have the wrong number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I mean it's that's that's what they're looking for. People who are not just doing woodworking but who are thinking about it and pondering it and asking the big questions of the why is why are we making these things? It's not just, you know, how or, you know, what steps do you do or just a, a rote kind of mechanistic approach to it. But it's like the why and the, you know, this is satisfying. Why is this satisfying? This is good. Why is this good? Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because we have, uh, you know, Mike and I met through a, a classical school co-op. Yeah. So we, both of our families homeschool, but we also do a classical homeschool co-op. And so once a week, our, our kids get together with other families and we do uh, homeschool co-op stuff. Uh, but it is a classical model. And so we we know a lot of classical educators and, and that world, we have our, our feet in that. Um, and it's so interesting because when we've talked about this program to other people, people in the, the classical school world, uh, the homeschool world also, and also, um, you know, I've met people from great book schools and other sorts of institutions that they're all saying, yeah, we've been reading Hugh. Yeah. We've been reading the Didascalicon and, re- and realizing our kids need these things. They mm-hmm. need these skills. We're giving them a very lopsided uh, education if they're yeah. only looking at yeah, books. Yeah, super STEM Tests. heavy, STEM. basically. Yeah, yeah, right? And so uh, they're realizing that, but they also, the way that a lot of... The, the current institutions right now are running, they're not really set up for that. They are so academics focused. Yeah. And so a lot of them are struggling thinking, how can we squeeze in a little bit of handwork somewhere? Yeah. How can we make room in that <laughs> closet for a wood shop? You know, bring like some after hours, yeah. extracurricular. Yeah. How can we how can we tag that on the end of it? Where, you know, Hugh of St. Victor would say, No, 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 you don't get it. This is actually Part this of the core part of, of the whole education. thing. Yeah, this is essential. This is not make room for it. This is it belongs in the middle. Yeah, and and I think the best of of uh, the classical world they know that they yeah. realize that and they're realizing hmm mm-hmm. we have we have booked up our time so full with academics that we're going to have to accommodate we're going to have to adjust our way of thinking about education uh, so that we do include these things. So we've been a part of these conversations for I don't know three or four years we've been talking to different people at different Mm -hmm. levels and it seems like we just meet more and more people who are saying yeah actually kids need to learn how to work with their hands yeah like that's a really important part of life yeah and it's Um, not just because that's where the careers are though that is a good argument um to make for the trades you could say well the trades have job security you can't outsource a plumber right because you always need a plumber locally uh that kind of thing that's a good argument. That's not the argument that that we or they are making. It's sort of the same argument that um, underpinned the whole Sloyd movement and mm-hmm. other movements around the turn of the 20th century. That it, uh, these this knowledge is essential for character formation. Yes. You know, the Sloyd movement was not about oh, let's make sure that kids know how to whittle little birds and stuff. It was because they can sell them and make some yeah, money. Yeah, exactly. They can make a few dollars. <laughs> that was not it at all. It was that. Uh, these things teach them character. Yeah. To struggle with wood grain means that they have to humble themselves to the material and mm-hmm. to the tool and to their lack of ability. Yeah. Because if what you're focused on is is a, a, you know bookish learning, right? You can master a subject in your own mind. <clears throat> there's no there's nothing there as a check to humble you. But yeah. if you go and you try and uh, make something with 
you know, wooden bodied planes and chisels and saws. You want to make two pieces of wood fit together nicely. Yeah. That can be very humbling very fast. <laughs> and so you you learn that character trait that you cannot get from your book studies, from your philosophical studies, um, which tend to uh, puff you up. <laughs> like you can get pretty puffed up on knowledge even though you haven't seen anything in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, well, then Crawford talks about that. You know, he yeah. was working at a think tank for a yes. while and he said, you never met with reality. And he was comparing yeah. it to his time doing... Um, doing electrical work in college. And he said, either the light flips on or it doesn't. Yeah. Either you've succeeded or you've failed. And at the think tank, there's none of that. Yeah. You just continue to talk. Yeah. And 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 no one's ever wrong. It's just just ideas. Yeah. And it's just, there it is. Yeah. Uh, But there's nothing objective. There's nothing, you know, uh, verifiable. Yeah. And so he was talking about the value of working in a bike shop, you know, working on motorcycles and it either works or it doesn't. And, the being reckoning with reality, looking at this thing and the stuck screw, and mm-hmm. there is only one thing that has to happen. You have to get that yeah, screw it out. It is up to you. That's it. Yeah. And no conventional way of doing it is going to have, have to happen. So you need to be creative and figure out how you're going to get it out. And there you are. And that's a really essential, that, that, that crisis moment in education is essential. Yeah. to learning, to developing agency, and which is what Crawford is highlighting, agency. Um, but there's, there's just a general broad competency, competency is the point. It's not about being an, an expert. And it's also not you know technical school or something. Mm-hmm. It's not about equipping, or su- I should say, it's not about supplying the industrial economy with workers. Right. It's actually about making people who are agents, yeah. people who can actually wield the world yeah. <laughs> successfully. Yeah, and who aren't who will not be taken advantage of by the world as well. Right. You know, they're not who, dependent on yeah. all of these provided commodities to be able to have basic yeah. needs taken care of. <clears throat> so, I mean, interestingly enough, we also found that uh, a familiar name came up within this discussion and that was um Ivan Illich. And so yeah. We've talked about Illich because of his book, uh, Tools for Conviviality, which was uh, really amazing for us to read um, when our friend Will put us on that book uh, how many years ago? Yeah. Uh, It's a great book. It's not about the tools you might be thinking, but he he talks about tools in a a bigger way, in a broader way. It can apply to hand tools, I suppose, but Mm -hmm. it can also apply to institutions. Yeah. Um, But... Uh, Illich wrote, I think in 1993, um, this a book called In the Vineyard of the Text. Mm-hmm. And it's about, it's basically a commentary on Hugh of St. Victor's Didascalicon. Of all things. so handy. It's <laughs> unbelievably handy. So he goes through and he just unpacks these concepts in a really wonderful and approachable way. And it, it was kind of stunning to me to, to realize, oh, he's... He's so focused on this particular guy from the the 12th century, and actually Illich was, uh, he was a big fan of the 12th century. Well, no, he was friends with Hugh Saint Victor. That's true. Yes, he he counted him among his friends, like yeah. literally one of his friends. Yeah, because Illich was into it. Yeah, he he was. He, I think he felt that that was sort of the high point of Western civilization, and it's come downhill since. Yeah, that well, yes, that he was his argument. That. Yeah, yeah. 
And so he wrote this book, which I couldn't recommend highly enough yeah. uh, in the vineyard of the text. It's basically like medieval media ecology. Yeah. It's taking media ecology, uh, which is the study of technology and the way it influences society and people and that relationship. Um, but it's looking at it through the lens of Hugh of St. Victor's Didascalicon, mm-hmm. which is yeah. like, oh, that's exactly what I've, I've been looking yeah, for. That, yeah, that particular book. That's <laughs> <laughs> I knew someone wrote that. Um, yeah, and it is fascinating. He, he talks in there about... Um, you know, some concepts which were pretty mind-blowing for me. He, you know, talking about reading and how it has changed where where before that time, because uh, he, he talks about this time as such a seismic shift in the way we approach information and mm. books and reading that it, it rivals the advent of the printing press, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because books or scrolls or however you kept your information, however you recorded and passed down information, were at one time uh, primarily read aloud for the good of you and those around you and also as an aid to memorization. So you're internalizing that information. And reading was an embodied thing. Yes. You used your body yeah. as part of reading. Yeah. So you read out loud yeah. and you used your body as part of, it was mm-hmm. like a score. Yeah, it was more like a, a musical score, and you were a musical performer, yeah. and you fully you used your whole body to read this book. Yeah, um, as opposed to the silent sort of the silent scroll. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when there were observations in in those times about people who it was seen as a quirk if they read silently to mm-hmm. themselves, like oh, he he doesn't read aloud. There's something wrong with that guy. Like, <laughs> don't trust him. You know, he's reading to himself, which is, which was kind of violating the the whole point of the written word at that time. And then it shifted, right? And so this, the knowledge that was contained in the book became a thing unto itself. It was no longer um, alive and meant to be spoken and shared and memorized and internalized. Lives, yeah. Yeah. You, it, it developed to the point where here we are today when you can buy a book, never crack into it, and feel like you have that knowledge. You now own that knowledge yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you file it away. Um, and that was that, that is antithetical to that the previous way of thinking about it. But uh, very interesting stuff. Um, so many interesting concepts in that book where Illich is unpacking Hugh of St. Victor. So uh, again, we highly recommend that book. So what we wanted to do with this with this program then is, you know, the students who are going through the mechanical arts program, all of these seminary students, this is what they're supposed to do. They have to, this is part of their required course list. Uh, they uh, do some reading about craft work, but then they come out to the, the practicum side of it, the, yeah. the practicum where they go to a craftsperson, whether it's going to be a woodworker or a potter or you know any sort of trade that is available. We, there's a growing list of people who are uh, making themselves available. But what we just did here in our shop in mm-hmm. Maine was the very first mechanical yeah. arts practicum. Yeah. Um, so we had five students in. Uh, two are uh, actually MNT readers, and three are Greystone staffers. Yeah. So it was sort of a, a prototype or a, like a, a soft launch, I guess yeah. you could say, uh, trying to get the the program, uh, the kinks worked out of the program, um, and it was great. We had the the founder of Greystone, Mark Garcia, here, um, and Jessica and Tess from Greystone, and we had two other uh, MNT readers, Travis and Scott, and the five students 
uh, over five days. We started on Monday afternoon and worked through Friday. It was it was a deep dive yeah. into. Uh, it was, you know, I think if you think in terms of breadth and depth, I think we did, we covered a lot of territory, but we mm-hmm. went pretty deep. Yeah. So when I uh, started on Tuesday with the students, uh, what I wanted to do is we highlighted. Uh, I kind of framed the week or reframed the week by talking about these three essential components to successful woodworking. It's skills, materials, and tools. Mm -hmm. You can't get more basic than that. Skills, materials, and tools, right? So you have to know your materials. You have to know what wood is and how it works and how you work it and how it responds to humidity and the different species and how it grows and how that informs the way that you uh, situate the board within the piece of furniture. You have to know your material. You also, of course, have to know your tools because those are the things that are shaping the wood. You have to know what sharp is. You have to know how to hold a hand plane, how to pair with a chisel, how to not break off end grain off the backside, you know, spelching the grain, that kind of thing. And you also have to have skills. You have to have the manual dexterity to be able to control that tool to do exactly what you're trying to accomplish and no more, no further. And so that's woodworking skills, tools, and materials. And so what we wanted to do with this week was to go do a deep dive into that. And so day one, uh, Tuesday morning, when we were rolling up our sleeves, I said, okay, this is a a chunk of birch from Mm -hmm. my firewood. And we talked about riving and grain orientation. And it was so amazing because not everybody in the class had prior experience with woodworking. Some in the class had no prior experience at all. So to, to start with a piece of firewood and to go outside and rive this, to split it, talk about the way trees grow into cones and they get not only wider, but they they grow up in cones so that it's not like the branches go. We were talking about how it all grows. And then I handed them, we had a stack of offcuts from our house project of flat sawn pine boards. And I said, and I had a stump in front of me, a big stump. And I said, okay. And I handed them out and I said, show me where this was situated in the tree. Hmm. Not only like, so find the pith, but also which end is up, which end is down. And then the next step was to take them through to say, okay, so which direction should you plane this face of this board? And it was amazing Mm -hmm. going through all that. Woodworkers with no prior experience gave me the right answer every single time. They picked up a random scrap and fully understood what that piece of wood was and therefore what they needed to do. Yeah. It was it's so mind-blowing. Very, it was very cool. And so we sent them to the benches with tools and they started planing. And it was, I have never seen so much instant success with the tools mm-hmm. because when you're when you're using tools, if you skip over the materials part, yeah. if Which somebody many people do, they just say, Here, this is a hand plane, yeah, this is how you planing. work it. All right. Well, if it if it tears out, just turn it around. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're not going to be in, you're not going to understand why, why yeah. or how do I know if it's going to tear you'll out? You'll just or, be frustrated. You'll honestly, just be that's frustrated. what happens because you're like you don't know why it's not working, and you think it's you, or you think the tool's not set up right, and you're missing something, and it's because you are missing something. Yeah. Right. So it was amazing. It was amazing to see these students be taught how to what a hand plane is, how to use it, and instantly 
be successful planning because mm-hmm. they got it. They knew what <clears throat> the grain was doing. Yeah. And so on, um, I was not there on the Tuesday of the program because I, I tutor at our, our classical co-op. And then Wednesday, we, we decided we were going to do a woods walk. And there's mm-hmm. this place that we go um, that we've done a few different woods walks um, over the years. It's this great little one plus mile. It's a pretty short loop trail, but there's so many things going on there in the woods. It's a really interesting little piece of forest with a beautiful overlook out at the end. And we talked about uh, the trees and how they grow and why they do what they do, right? And why why some species do certain things and why others don't, you know, like the pine takes risks with its its growth patterns and the the spruce does not take any risks whatsoever. It's It grows straight as an arrow no matter what. And um, these different aspects of uh, the, like uh, succession woods, they're growing up from some species to others because we, we took note that this, this fairly mature woodland was a field at some point. There are, um, there's, you know, the old New England stone fences running right through the middle and the trees were all of a certain age. And um, just a lot of interesting details to see. And uh, everyone was, was starting to note things and ask questions about things as we went. Uh, we went out to this overlook where we're looking over this tidal river, beautiful view out there. Hmm. And just talking about how our understanding of the forest has changed a lot just within the past decade of how previously it was sort of understood that it's all a competition, right? Trees are sort of solitary, competitive uh, things that they're looking to gain as much sunlight as they can, and they're looking to get as many nutrients as they can. And, you know, the uh, to the victor go the spoils, basically. You know, the, mm-hmm. the bigger tree wins. And if you can uh, shade out your competition and kill them off, then, you know, it, it's basically a Darwinian approach to forest ecology. And then uh, people started realizing that actually um, there's this whole other thing going on, a whole other layer to the forest that we did not have, very few people really understood before. And that's, there's this whole um, mycelial network that trees are actually connected to. And trees actually are not in competition in anywhere near the way we thought they were, that they actually are cooperating that they're sharing nutrients, they're sharing resources, and even sharing information about pests and infestations and things like that. And to to go out into the place where we source these materials for our woodworking and to to learn and understand more about how this works together is, it's very humbling, I think. Um, It really is enlightening about these materials and it just makes you appreciate them that much more. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, a lot of good conversations on that walk. Um, it took, it always takes longer than we think it will because you're only walking a mile, but you're you're thinking yeah. many miles. Well, in every woods walk that ends with uh, the recitation of Gerard Manley Hopkins yes. oh, yeah. is good. That's, that's just right for out there. Yeah. So um, we really enjoyed that and then came back and what else did we do Wednesday? Got back to the benches. Yeah, so we were doing uh, joinery. We were uh, tackling uh, particularly dovetails. We were focusing on cutting dovetails. And again, uh, not all of our students had prior experience. 
So we walked through that whole process and it was just, again, amazing to, to watch how sharp everybody was. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were watching through the, the demonstration, getting right to the bench and repeating all of that, that process. It was really beautiful to see all this come together. So we did that. We did other sorts of complicated planing. Uh, so I had some some hardwood pieces with some crazy frustrating grain. Uh, and it was it was one of those things that what we were trying to do was introduce them to the, these skills, tools, and materials that, that they really can uh, know how to adjust their tool if it's not performing properly and deepen their knowledge of the, the material. And along the way, they're, they're therefore sharpening their skills. So we worked through uh, some joinery. Uh, throughout the week, we also we did various other things. We uh, looked at sharpening, talked through the sharpening process, what is sharp, um, and we looked at mortise and tenon joinery. We examined antique furniture, which was really cool as well because, yeah. uh, you know, if you've been around here long enough, you know, we talk about secondary surfaces because it shows the tool marks. Mm-hmm. It's like tracking an animal. You're looking right. for the tracks to trace down what animal was this? Where did he go? Yeah. What happened? What creature what was did he it, thinking? What creature interacted with this one? And, you know, tr- tracing the story out in the same way antique furniture, pre-industrial furniture, uh, has that Mm -hmm. because it was made by hand. It wasn't sent through a machine. uh, And therefore, all of those tool marks are left behind as as tracks to trace out. So it was amazing with the the amount of uh, knowledge that these students had gained to be able to take a a 1730s drop leaf table, take it apart, you know, roll it out, take it apart, look at these tool marks and say, okay, (laughs) see this, what is all that? Tell me yep. these tool marks, this tear out, this. And to see them all understand what's going on, understand the grain, know what tool that must have been. And I said, okay, which direction was this board planed from? Yeah, I think a lot of woodworkers would not know how to answer that question. But because they understand, uh, if they understand what a knot is and that a branch came out of there and therefore what the grain is doing, mm-hmm. you you do know what direction that board was planed from because yep. on the far side of the knot, there's tear out, but on the, the near side of the knot, there's not tear out. Yep. Uh, so that kind of information just blew me away to say, okay, explain to me what's going on with all these tool marks. Yep. And they could just read the surface. Yep. It was so cool to see that. Yep. So, so yeah, the week was, was full of, of things like that. Lots of aha moments. Um, one of one of the students here, um, uh, Scott, was actually part of our apprenticeship program, mm-hmm. which was really cool to have him come in to meet him in person, and to have to see him just building on what he had gotten out of that program, yeah. and to to hear how that affected him personally those those eight weeks in in the online program that we do. And by the way, we forgot to mention, every night we stayed up late, yeah, that's telling right. stories and yeah. Glasses of wine and laughing and songs and yep. oh, it was just so good. It was so awesome. Uh, we ended on Friday with, uh, as you would expect, I, th- I think we have uh, we concluded the week with a trip through the Jonathan Fisher House. Yep. Um, I have I was given permission to take people through there, so we had a crew going through there, and again. You know, we yeah, could. We just there's no day. way we had enough yeah. time to look at it. We just got uh, totally bogged down, as we mentioned earlier. So yeah. it was just so amazing to be able to look at this story and to not only examine a historic craft work, but to then think and reflect on 
this one one individual man yeah. out of all of the people in history yeah. this guy what he did and where he was situated and what he how he uh set his hands what he set his hands to and how he did it in a way that integrated all of these aspects of life yeah uh, fisher lived an integrated life um that his when he was working on his latin and studying through his his uh, you know, Hebrew exegesis mm-hmm. that was not separated from the fact that he had to finish, you know, twisting the the cattail seat on his chairs right. and, you know, turn more stand bodies to make candle stands. And, and all those things were all a part of his life and they're woven in together. And so to be inside of the house that he built mm. um, and to you know, read some of the, Scott throughout the week was reading Fisher's journals. I have yeah. a Xerox copy of Fisher's journals and Scott was just boring through those and reading accounts aloud. 1812, oh, listen to this. And he's, we're at breakfast and Scott's yeah. reading us yeah. from Fisher's journal. Loving that. And to be then standing in his his house that he built, that he raised in 1814 and all, see all this furniture and to see the, the, the love and the passion that he poured into the work of his hands and to say, wow, to see that he self-consciously was uh, trying to bring these things together, bring life uh, all together under one banner, mm-hmm. not separated and segregated, uh, was such an inspiring thing for for all of us. I mean, I yeah. the book came out in 2018, and I, as a result of this class, I have a renewed interest. You know, yeah. I want to go back and yeah. learn more. I want to revisit this stuff and spend more time again and. I don't know. It's just such an inspiring story that has. It really was the genesis of Mortis Intended Magazine. Was yeah. my research into Jonathan Fisher. So, it's it's so much of uh, a full circle sort of thing to be partnering with Greystone, to be able to share this with, with people. We also, um, Mark Garcia and I, were talking that it is very important to us that we're not uh, only allowing their students to take these classes, but it's very important that we open these classes to anyone who wants to to join it. So we'll be doing this at least once a year, hopefully twice a year. We'll see what, what we can do in our schedule. Yeah. Um, but we will be doing this mechanical arts program uh, going into the future because it was just too good to pass up. Yeah. Too good to, to let go. Uh, we want to keep doing this. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, an inspiring week and we uh, definitely look forward to the next time around for this program. So thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments, you can leave them below. Questions, uh, ask us, ask away. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, and if you could, please do leave a review. Uh, we always enjoy reading them. So thanks for listening. Thank you. <laughs>